Hello, everybody. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'll be speaking with Justin Smith, President and Chief Operating Officer of Bright, based in Rochester, New York. The company has been named to the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America six times and has built its success on solving the complex IT challenges of their customers. In addition to leading Bright, Justin sits on the board of Rochester Regional Health System in upstate New York. He coaches high school baseball and enjoys spending time with his family. Justin, thank you for joining us on the show. Guy, thanks for having me. So psyched to be here today. Thank you. Absolutely. So the year was 1999 when uh, you took over as lead of Bright. Am I correct? You are correct. Can you tell us uh, what the business was like and what what your experience was like starting in the business? Absolutely. So um, the company that uh, we acquired, and I say we because I acquired this company with my father, John, uh, back Mm -hmm. in 1999. But the company we acquired in 1999 was an OEM white box manufacturer. For people who don't know what that means or or what the term is, it really is a a mini Dell, a mini Lenovo, uh, a mini regionalized Hewlett Packard building, custom built desktop, laptop, and server equipment with Intel or AMD inside. And so uh, that was a start. That's really where we came from. And uh, our roots are very much ground in IT infrastructure, hardware infrastructure. Now, the world's changed a little bit. The technology world especially has changed a little bit since uh, 1999. Paint a picture for us of what the growth of the business looked like between 1999, when uh, Bright was Bright Computers and a white box manufacturer, all the way up until where things stand today. Sure. You're not kidding. The world certainly has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when you read the headlines in, in the news, you're not sure if it's changed for the better. <laughs> but uh, right. I, I, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Can I, you know that. And uh, so I, mm-hmm. I believe we're always getting better as a, a society, as a country, as a, as a community, as a globe. But anyway, I digress. So we, we've certainly changed our game. Uh, along the way, we've pivoted multiple times. Um, as, as mentioned in earlier, we were a white box manufacturer. Uh, you know, the business at that time was, was an excellent business. It was a small business. We only had uh, about 13 employees when we first acquired the business. Very low from a revenue perspective, probably around three, three and a half million dollars in revenue. You know, very localized in terms of our clientele. And, you know, w- we worked very hard to grow that aspect of the business and, and in fact grew quite rapidly. We, we tripled the size of the company in a very short period of time, like 18, 24 months. It was extremely fast from a growth perspective. We expanded our, our reach, our clientele, our sales team, our marketing teams. It just expanded quite rapidly. Um, tripled the size of the revenues, as I said, and, and probably doubled the size of the workforce at that time. And um, we were off the races. We, were, we certainly were building a high-quality desktop PC, later on a, a high-quality mobile device. Much of our technology had Intel technology inside of it. I would say we were predominantly Intel over AMD. And, um, you know, we expanded our, our vertical market focus. At the time when we bought the company, we were very focused on a small vertical market segment, primarily education and state and local government. Uh, the name, in fact, Bright Computers came from the concept of Bright ideas in education, bright ideas, 
need or demand bright computers. And so that's kind of where the catchy little phrase came out. And it, and it's stuck for, you know, up until this point, bright. You know, at the time when we acquired the company and, and in the very, you know, first few years, the bill of material on a desktop PC was somewhere around $1,800, $1,900. And the profit margins were excellent. But competitiveness in the marketplace started to drive the pricing of desktop PCs down. It became much more of a commodity than it was at the time when, when we purchased it. It literally almost happened overnight. And so it really caused us to start thinking more and more about you know, what we were delivering to our clientele. And then more importantly, what our clientele was doing with that product once we delivered it. Once we l- dropped a thousand desktop PCs off on the loading dock, what were you doing with it? And so we started asking that simple question, what, what do you do with this? And we began to find out that, uh, or quickly found out that there's a whole lot that was done. You know, they were, besides logistically moving it from point A to point B, they were loading a lot of software on it. And that software was, you know, there was many layers to the software. There was not only an operating system, but there was applications. There was security tools and technologies that are being loaded on it. There was other peripherals that were being connected. Uh, there was other, other PCs that had to be removed to make room for that device. So. We started offering services coupled with the platform. So instead of just dropping this off on a loading dock and being done with it, we started to add value-added services. You know, to this day, we continue to offer value-added services. Now, they're much more targeted. And as I had mentioned just a few seconds ago, I talked about the fact that security software was being loaded on these endpoints. And we saw a real opportunity to expand into the endpoint security space. And that's really how we got to where we are today. Today, as, as you know, but for everybody listening, we are really a, a, a systems integrator that has a really strong presence in the data and network security space. We help customers today protect their data at rest, in use, in motion, and now moving to the cloud. And that be, has become our predominant business model. We do not focus on desktop PCs any longer. We don't focus on uh, laptops or server architecture, we really focus on securing data and helping customers with that very complex problem of of locking down uh, their environments. And that gets ever more complex every day, especially with work from home. Yeah. And the rise of the, the insane rise of fraud and cybersecurity issues, I imagine, is, uh, is very much pushing the need for additional additional security work. Yeah, without question, that's accelerated our business over the last handful of years. And you know, since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, it's, it's really accelerated the need to, uh, to secure endpoints, for sure. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the start of the Bright Computer story. Sure. And talk a little bit about some of the key inflection points that were pivots if you will, yeah. that you led the business through along the way. And for the benefit of other CEOs, students of business who are listening to this, dig into your thinking about why certain things made sense. Was it a leap of faith? Was it a highly calculated decision? Was it a combination of both, right? Let's start with the most simple. When you bought this business and you you ended up growing it three to five X over a period of 18 to 24 months, was that by design? What made that a reality? 
Yeah, so certainly our growth early on, on in the PC side of the world was very much by design. I mean, we, we, we came into this business with the goal and objective of, of rapidly growing and expanding the customer base. We felt like we had a very good product. We had a, an excellent underlying customer base or existing set of clientele. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, as I had mentioned earlier, it was very limited. So uh, limited to, to K-12 higher education type of customer, state and local business customers, and almost exclusively in the state of New York. You know, we, we knew that with previous relationships that I had, previous relationships that my entrepreneurial father had, that we could branch into different vertical market segments. And uh, we were very successful moving into a number of the larger enterprise type of clients in upstate New York with by, by utilizing those relationships, those previous relationships and that street credibility that my father had built. So that, that was very much by design, that, that growth. And um, it happened very quickly. We certainly increased marketing uh, quite a bit. There was very little marketing that was taking place early on. When we bought the business, we added marketing to the mix, spent a fair amount of money building our brand, building the bright brand. You know, hired additional salespeople to you know pound the phones and dial for dollars, and that was again very very successful. But you know, with that revenue growth, the erosion of of margin and the erosion of the bomb, going from eighteen or nineteen hundred dollars down to sub one thousand, literally in just a very few short years, created uh, a lot of margin pressure, gross profit margin pressure, and pricing pressure that started to make the business um, not as profitable as it had been. So that's, but that growth was certainly by design and, and something we executed very well on, to be honest with you. Yeah, at the time I, I worked for both Dell and AMD and saw that decline in margin and also the, the rise in need for, well, f- from a hardware standpoint, peripherals, right? Those were the the additional, that's, that's made up some of the difference in terms of uh, certainly revenue erosion, but also profit erosion, a little less so security. Uh, I suppose that was more the domain of companies like Bright who are working with the the end customers. So how did the customer profile evolve for Bright over that time period? So started in education and state and local government. How did it evolve? evolve from there, whether it be through these relationships or just the additional sales and marketing energy? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, you know, it, that in and of itself, that, that client mix was more of a natural progression, I would say, than an intentional uh, progression or movement. You know, as we, we continue to look for opportunities and continue to ask additional questions, we started to kind of move into a more a commercial or enterprise world with, you know, your your traditional type of uh, enterprise organization, and I, I shouldn't say that you know a K twelve organization or a higher educational institution isn't an enterprise. I mean, they in, in and of themselves are businesses, and sure. you know, uh, for face value, they're they're pretty significant in size. But we started to move into you know some of the larger upstate New York based financial services firms and and banks and manufacturing entities and you know some of your more household names that you might find around the upstate new york market so you know the the writing was on the wall so to speak during that 2000 2001 bubble and in some ways 
some industries or some businesses might say, we're, we're at a similar big change point of change right now with the pandemic. And so was this, when you saw the, the change in margin and you talk about it happening very quickly, was it for, for you, was it the writing was on the wall or was it uh, more of watching gross margins erode quarter over quarter and a gradual thought process? What was what was the straw, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back for you guys? Yeah, there, there wasn't one straw that, you know, broke the camel's back. And I, what, what really happened? Well, I, I think what you're getting at is, you know, when did that transition really occur? When did that first pivot occur? And to be frank with you, it really, uh, we, we started to pivot when my brother, Trevor, joined the organization. And uh, he joined the organization in 2003. And at the time, you know, I, I was very lucky to um, get him to, to join me. He's my business partner today. And uh, I'm, I'm a very lucky guy to have him. We've had a great relationship for our entire lives. And uh, we're mm -hmm. very tight. The, the business relationship works. I always you know, give him the credit. It works because he's, he's the one that's probably tolerant of me. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those big brother things. I'm the big brother, sure. but, um, okay. you know, he, he, he came on board in 2003 and he, he certainly w was bought into the idea that, you know, we needed to continue to create revenue and the revenue generation was being created by that, that, that cash cow for us, which was the desktop and laptop and server architecture at the time. It still was in 2003 when he came on. But he really wasn't passionate about it. What he found, and, and this is around the time where we're asking these questions, you know, what are you doing with this when we drop it off in your loading dock? Mm -hmm. it, it, it was at that time where we really started to learn more about data network security and, and endpoint security and what people were doing with these devices. And he he wasn't really passionate about desktop computing or laptop computing. He was more passionate or became more passionate about the whole security space. And that, that in and of itself uh, wasn't intentional. It may even be luck, and I'd rather be lucky than good any day. But sure. Trevor was really the reason why we started to get into the, the network security or, or endpoint security space, because that's what he was passionate about. And you know, he convinced me very quickly that this was an area of growth and that if we were going to pivot and, and we knew we needed to pivot but if we were going to pivot that we should start building expertise and and street credibility in the space of protecting data at rest primarily at that time because there wasn't a lot of talk about moving it around a network or into the cloud there wasn't this mm -hmm. concern over data moving east and west it was really just how do we protect it when it's sitting on an endpoint and uh you know, that's really why why we got into it, why we pivoted, and I would say that that's probably just more chance than anything. You know, and and his passion for security, even to this day. I mean, he is extremely, extremely passionate about everything we do at Bright, but he's probably most passionate about what we do in the data network security space and helping customers truly protect that data. You know, in the enterprise, which is increasingly growing. So. Tell us about how the continued growth of Bright was fueled by security and any other changes that you made to the business over time. Yeah, so you know everybody's acutely aware of you know the different economic challenges that we've certainly had over the last twenty years or since I bought the business in nineteen ninety nine. Right, you first and foremost have 
uh, the tragic events of 9-11. You then have the mortgage securities issue in, in 2008 that really caused uh, or threw the whole entire country globe into the Great Recession. And now you've had this terrible pandemic and, and, and nightmare that we're all living right now with COVID-19. Now, at the time in, in, in 2001, when 9-11 occurred, I was a very young individual, business owner. I only had a couple of years under my belt. And, you know, I, I did the best I could at that time to lead my organization through that. We didn't have the strongest balance sheet at that time. We weren't making a ton of money. We were certainly at a phase of our business operations where we were taking every penny that we were making and invested into back into the business. So we didn't have a lot in a, a rainy day fund for emergencies. And so what I, what I learned from that first, I, I would say, um, dent in the armor is that you need to prepare for that rainy day. You need to better position your organization to withstand some type of economic downturn or some type of you know just just business climate uh, interruption. And so after 9/11, I really spent a lot of time improving our balance sheet, building a rainy day fund, and um, structuring the business so that it was uh, less impacted by your 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 everyday economic conditions. You know and. I would certainly say that by being in the, the network, data network security space, endpoint security space, you know, data still needs to be protected, regardless of what's going on in the economy. People still mm -hmm. have a requirement to protect this data it, even more so because the, the number of bad actors out there has only exponentially increased over time um, in the last yeah. 20 years. I mean, there's just, I don't even know how many more there are today, but let's just say it's, it's exponentially greater. and when there's economic challenges and issues, you know, bad actors seem to come out of the woodwork everywhere. We're de definitely seeing that during COVID-19. People are preying on the weak. People are preying yeah. on people who are in tough situations. It's terrible that that happens, but it's, it's so true. So we got ourselves prepared after 9-11, really weathered the um, financial downturn and the Great Recession of 2008-2009 really felt very little impact from that as a result. We were ready to weather the storm. We made significant investments in our business at that time to position ourselves for future growth. And, you know, those, those investments really panned out. I would say that by 2012, 2013, we were, you know, clicking on all cylinders and have accelerated our growth ever since. And I even, I, I just really repeated that model once again and I and have spent a ton of time investing back in this business, capital, operating capital, just time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears back into this business over the last nine or 10 months while we've gone through this COVID pandemic. Yeah. Believing that that strategy will pay off again for us going forward here and that we'll see another exponential acceleration of our business. Yeah. So I'd like to return back to that in a sure. moment. But Going back to blood, sweat, and tears, mm. I was I was speaking with an entrepreneur this morning about some of these episodes, and and one of the things he expressed was that he'd really like to know what what those blood, sweat, and tears look like at a personal level. And certainly, you and I have spoken about the level of sacrifice involved. Is there anything you can share with us, whether it be at you know this 
this 2001 juncture around post 9-11 or even beyond as you as you hit that that next exponential growth phase what did it take at a personal level ah that's a great question can i and it you know you know makes the emotions kind of swell in you when you start to think about it right so we're going on 22 years now april will be 22 years of owning this business and it's it's amazing to think about you know where we as an organization have come from but more importantly probably where i have come from and and how much i have grown not only as a business professional and as a leader of an organization but so much as an individual and you know early on when I, when i bought this company as i mentioned we were only 12 or 13 people and it was 12 or 13 people that i inherited as we acquired the business there were people that i didn't have a lot of street credibility with i hadn't been in the trenches with i didn't know whether or not they had my back or not and you know so a lot of the 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 challenges that we faced i was weathering those challenges on my own i was really alone I mean, I was having to make business decisions with very little input from anybody uh, because I just wasn't sure if they were giving me the right input and they weren't sure if I was making the right business decisions. It just wasn't my team. You know, fast forward to 2020 here and I've got a great team. You know many of them. And I just, every day I, I look at my team certainly when they're in the office, not always in the office right now, but (laughs) when I get an opportunity to look at them, I I just realize how important that team is. And that even though at the end of the day, I have to make the final decision in in many instances, especially when they're big corporate decisions, right? But even though I'm making that decision, I, I, I know these people have my back. And we have been in the trenches. I've been in the trenches with many of them for many, many years. You know, my, my longest tenured employee that I've hired here is going to be celebrated, just celebrated his 20th anniversary with us. And, you know, we've got a lot of people that are very tenured and have, have been part of the growth of this organization. They're very committed to Bright. They're very committed to me. They're very committed to Trevor. And they're committed to the mission of, of, of Bright and what we're trying to do. Um, and the belief that, you know, good enough is never enough. We want to continue to keep doing more. So, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears now is a little different. It's, 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 it's not just me, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. other people that are there with me. Instead of being curled up on the couch in the fetal position at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning wondering, okay, how am I going to make payroll uh, on my own, you know, back early on in, in the business ownership, oh, those, those situations don't occur anymore, right? It's, it's, it's really, if there's a, a decision of magnitude or something really negative would occur, I know I've got a great team to help me through that. So that's that's probably the biggest difference between 1999 and 2020. I mean, to have such a great team around me, and I feel blessed. And and if I told, if I had any advice for any young entrepreneur, it's just surround yourself with like-minded people and build a great team around you, and allow those people to you know, come up with great ideas and nurture those great ideas and encourage those great ideas and, and build an environment that is free of fear. You know, I, I've got this saying that I talk about all the time, do not fear failure, fear never getting a chance to fail. And that means a lot to everybody here. And it means a lot to me. And we live by that 
day in and day out. You're never going to get crucified for making a mistake here. You know, if you make a mistake, let's analyze why, why we made it and how we prevent it from happening again in the future. So, but that's what yeah. blood, sweat, and tears looks like to me. I appreciate you sharing that. As you think about your own learning or even just the business, you choose personal or business growth. What were the, some of the things along the way that were hard learned lessons? Well, I think, you know, I'll, I'll start with a, a, just a personal side of things. Um, you know, the, the balance, the work-life balance is sometimes hard to negotiate. And I think for any young business owner, uh, again, I keep saying young, I, I was 28 when I, when I bought this business and it's not super mm -hmm. young. There's, you know, people who are billionaires now at age 28 that, that, you know, are killing it. But, um, and, you know, I'm very happy for them. That's fantastic. But, you know, at the time for me, I was, I was young. I had uh, some, a great experience working at Xerox previous to, to coming to Bright. I, I really am very fortunate to have worked for Xerox Corporation. Great company, incredible training programs. I learned a lot. I really, really, truly learned a lot. And I thought I knew a lot, but I really, I didn't know much <laughs> when, it, when you look back <laughs> on it. That's kind of funny, but... Uh, uh, I did know a lot, but I, it wasn't much. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not as much as I know today. Um, and experiences have created that. But anyway, the long and short is that the work-life balance thing on the personal note was was probably the thing that I needed to figure out the most. I, I'm a really driven individual, very much type A personality. You know that. Um, you've had those experiences with me. Mm -hmm. I have a tireless work ethic. You know, one of the things that I've always lived by is that nobody's ever going to outwork me. I mean, there might be smarter people out there. There might be people who are more well capitalized, but nobody's got that that drive and that desire, that work ethic. And I'm I'm, I'm sure there are, but that's you know that's that's my mindset. Sure. And, and so yeah. that that came into play when I started, um, you know, having a family. My wife and I started having a family. My my oldest son was born in 2000, and you know that was at the time where we had just literally bought this business and you know i had to work i was working 80 90 100 120 hours a week you know sometimes till you know two three o'clock in the morning because i just didn't have enough people like-minded uh excellent people around me at the time to to drive the business forward so you know i i was spending certainly a lot of time on on work and probably not enough time with my lovely wife uh, of 23 years. We're still, still obviously married. Uh, not obviously, but we are married. And, um, you know, now I have three young men. My oldest is 20 years old now. I've got a 17-year-old and a, or excuse me, an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old. And, you know, I definitely felt like early on I had to learn to balance work and life and that over time I've done a really good job of doing that and spent a lot of time with my boys. I mean, you know, you and I uh, reschedule this so I could go out and spend some time fly fishing with my oldest son. And uh, I yeah. made that a priority. That's just a little mini example of the fact that I think I've gotten that piece right on the, on the personal side anyway. And on the, on, the, on the business side, there's just so many lessons learned. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, there's an old saying that cash is king. Yes, it mm -hmm. is. It is certainly king. You you want to make sure that you save for a rainy day. Make sure that you protect that balance sheet. Make sure that you are always working to 
be a profitable entity to continue as a going concern. Uh, if you get to the point where you're not able to pay yourself because you have to pay other people, something's not right. You got to fix that. Uh, I see a lot of times young entrepreneurs trying to start businesses and they're paying themselves nothing or uh, maybe they're paying themselves nothing. Maybe you got to do that for a short period of time, but next thing you know, a year or two later, they're not making any money. They're not paying themselves anything. And if, if that's the case, something's broken. And I always encourage people to kind of take a longer, harder look at what's going on here. If you're putting in all the work, you're working 100 hours a week, and you've got these other people there that are working 40 hours a week, and you're not getting to where you want to be, something's broken. You have to make some changes. So, you know, if you keep in mind the cash king, but you always want to be saving for a rainy day and make sure that you're operating a profitable business, I think that's a, a really good starting point for, for somebody that's trying to build or grow a business. You know, one of my one of my big surprises when I started doing this type of work was how few people understand the importance of profit versus growth in revenue. And specifically whether your objective is, you know, it's greed or it's to make a difference in the world, it all takes profit. Jobs, op- creating jobs, creating opportunity offering raises, providing training, all these things cost money. Did it did it take you long to learn that? Or was it something you found early on as a, as a simple reality of running a business? Yeah, so that's a great question. I learned that the hard way. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I mentioned earlier on in, in the podcast that I bought this company with my entrepreneurial father. And you know, he, he's just a phenomenal business person, um, you know, true mentor to me. He's, you know, certainly my father and I love him to death and, and, uh, he's been a great father, but, but he, when we, when we first bought the business, I don't think we did a really great job of determining who was going to do what and, and disseminating that information to each other. And what I mean by that is that you know, I came on board guns a-blazing with, with, with this goal and objective of, of driving revenues and, and growing the company as fast as possible, right? And what I didn't understand at the time that was that, um, you know, all of that takes money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was working at Big Xerox, I, you know, I wasn't <laughs> privy to that. I mean, you know, Xerox understood this behind the scenes, but I was just, sure. you know, a, a guy on the street and I didn't understand that. I didn't, I was never privy to, you know, balance sheets and, and P&Ls and things of that nature. And, you know, I think my father was so, you know, so proud of the fact that here, here comes, you know, his oldest son into the business with him. We bought it together and, you know, he's kicking butt and taking names. He's out there tripling revenues in a very short period of time. And, and didn't, he didn't think to, I, I don't know what it was, can I, but he, he didn't clue me into the fact that I was burning through cash like it was going out of style for one reason or another, um, whether, whether it was a pride thing or whether he just wasn't really inspecting the details uh, like he should have been, we were just spending more money than we were making. And so I learned that cash is king the hard way. We, we got to the point where all of a sudden, 
hey, you know, there's no more cash in the bank. And oh, by the way, now you're out on your line of credit and you're extending your line of credit or you're getting close to being on your credit or, you know, those things I, I learned, I feel like, you know, uh, under the, the, the fire of, uh, of, you know, I don't know, firing squad, basically. <laughs> so it must that, have that, felt like it. Yeah, yeah, it did. You know, that it, it did. That's one of those blood, sweat, and tears moments. Okay, sugar, we got to reverse course pretty quickly here. Uh, how do I still continue to grow top line revenue, but do it at a more cost effective way so that we're maintaining profitability? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I'm not talking like gross profit, I'm talking operating margin, bottom line, net operating income. So mm-hmm. when, you, when you work 100 hours for free, right, and you put it in those terms, I think some folks began to understand some of the downsides of business ownership, business leadership. But as you know, yeah. I mean, being an entrepreneur yourself, you know that it also has its benefits, right? I mean, sure. when you want to go out and, and take a morning or an afternoon and go fishing with one of your children, you can. When you want to, you know, take your wife on a vacation or go on a wife with your vacation, you can. Or when you want to go, you know, play around a golf with some friends, you can. Or even if it's just you want to call your mother up and take your mother out for lunch or dinner, you can because that's the benefit of, of being an entrepreneur and owning your own business. You do create, you know, you get to be the creator of the rules. <laughs> sure. So Sure. Yeah. What do you view as the key success factors for Bright today? The IT services space, is a complicated world. Yeah, so we're really in a in a, a great spot right now. We're we're in a um, a very valued segment of of uh, of business. You know, people value the security of their data, just like they value that their health, just like they value their education. Right? If you look at healthcare and the cost of education, certainly higher education, I mean, it's, it's grown incrementally year over year for a long, long time. I mean, I, I know our healthcare costs are our number one operating expense here at Bright. They have exponentially increased since 1999. And that's, and that's because people value their health, right? They'll, they'll pay for healthcare. They'll pay for the cost of a, a higher education, because once you have that degree, uh, and at least, at least this has been the belief for a long time, it's sort of changing a little bit, but at least the belief has been that if you have a two or even better yet, a four-year degree, or even better yet, some type of graduate degree that, you know, now, now the, the book is yours to write. Nobody can tell you that you can't achieve greatness. And so I sort of feel like data network security and protecting data at rest and use and motion is is sort of like that in the fact that people value their privacy. People value mm-hmm. that no one's stealing their identity. Pe- people will will pay to keep those things secure. Now there's there's never any guarantees, just just like there isn't in the the healthcare insurance space or the healthcare space or the higher education space. Just because you have good healthcare doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. Just because you have a great education doesn't mean you're going to be uh, the CEO of the next, you know, billion-dollar unicorn and go public on Wall Street, right? And and just because you have made an investment in good data and network security doesn't mean you're going to be breached. But people value those things, and that's why I think we're in a in a great spot there. So relative to the competition, yeah, 
how do you feel Bright distinguishes itself? What are the key success factors that you think are going to be critical to continue to grow the business and uh, get that seventh Inc. 5000 award? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, we believe that good enough is never enough. And mm -hmm. that is very much ingrained into the culture of our organization. And, and good enough is never enough means a lot of things to us internally here. But just for the audience it, 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 at face value, what, it, what we try and do is really sit down and take the time to understand our customers' business goals and objectives. And how, you know, securing data at rest and motion and use or in the cloud may allow them or prevent them from achieving those business goals and objectives. And it's, you know, it's a pretty complex conversation. It's, it's, it's really about getting into the weeds or getting under the covers and really determining, you know, how data is flowing and moving and, and the complexities of that. But We've really taken the time to, to build relationships, to understand you know, how, how this data truly is moving. A lot of times where a client or a prospect would come to us and they're looking for a software solution, you know, they, they, they start mentioning brand name security tools. They're looking for a tool and they start mentioning mm -hmm. security tools. I want to buy this or I think I need this. Or, and we, we say, hold on a second. Let's put the brakes on for a second. You know, we're happy to to provide you with a tool or make a suggestion on a tool. But before we do that, can we, can we take a few steps back and really understand, you know, your workflow and your processes and really what you're trying to protect and, and, and where you're trying to protect that and how that data is being used, and how it's flowing. And so I think that resonates with, with customers. A lot of organizations, a lot of competitors will just sell you the tool. Oh, you want to buy a tool? Sure. Yeah, here you go. Here's the tool. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen from time to time here, but we really, truly have built a culture of, of trying to get an understanding of what our customers are trying to do and, and, and um, helping them make or, or making recommendations to help them achieve their business goals and objectives. And I think that's, you know, a little different than some of the big, big box shops. Mm -hmm. So as you think about, well, let me, let me ask you a question about, um, your impression of the overall maturity level of the of industry's comprehension of security because you said something important which is you you have to look at IT whether we're talking security or any other component of it in the context of how will it support or hinder if you do or don't do something support or hinder continued growth and performance of the organization do you think that industry as a whole has come to a point where they're they truly understand that as opposed to throwing dollars at and saying we have to do this in the same way that there's no wealth before health there's no wealth before risk management specifically to this topic in the context of security yeah, it's another great question so i think it's hard to put an overall maturity rating on the general market you know, let's just say we're using a, a scale of one to five from a general mm -hmm. security maturity perspective, right? Five being the highest, one being the lowest. I think it's hard to, in general, put ratings on the overall yeah. globe, you know, generalize. Look, generalize it. I think, yeah. I think you can get, 
you can get a little bit more granular with maturity rating scales when you start to look at specific industries, specific verticals, you know, like the healthcare industry or the financial services industry or the higher education industry. And, and so when you start breaking it down like that, you can say, well, you know, the financial services firms are very mature. They're very security aware. They're very mature for the most part. And cer you know, certainly the large financial institutions are very security aware and they're, they're continuing to build out their security maturity. They're probably the most critical vertical market segment that we work with in terms of their security maturity. They're always you know, really questioning how mature they really are. And, and they're, they're probably their biggest critics, which is a good thing for us as consumers, right? We want them to be constantly doing that. But it, it varies. The security maturity varies widely from vertical market to vertical market. What I think hap what, what's happened in, in, in the more recent past is that people are weighing, weighing the cost benefit of making investments in securing data at rest and use in motion in the cloud, right? And, and the way you do that today is you can, you can spend, let's, let's just both agree that you can spend an insatiable amount of money on protecting data at rest and use in motion mm -hmm. in the cloud, right? You, you, yep. you, you and I couldn't spend enough money to be 100% secure. And when you extrapolate mm -hmm. that out over the size of an organization, it's, it's significant. The advent of cybersecurity liability policies has given people the ability to kind of weigh that risk reward. For instance, you know, somebody might decide, okay, well, I can spend a million dollars to try and you know, protect this data, or I can spend $10,000 and buy a $5 million cyber liability cyber insurance policy. And mm -hmm. so we see that happening quite a bit, right? There's, there's large entities that are willing to uh, take some risk for you know, and, and weigh that risk reward in terms of their, their security maturity program. So, you know, that's, that's different, but that, that's what I see. That's what we see happening because it, it, at the end of the day, people just can't spend an insatiable amount of money to, to do this. They have to kind of weigh that risk and reward and, and they're supplementing what they don't spend or what they feel they can't spend on actual technology to lock things down. And they're putting it into a, an insurance policy protect them in the event of mm -hmm. an occurrence. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. When you think back on when you think back on the cash crunch situation, and I realize I'm jumping topics here, but I, I think this is a it's your show Kanai. You can do anything you want. <laughs> it's it's thank you for allowing me to believe it's my show. <laughs> <laughs> so you know if you if you think back on when you know, there was a cash crunch. And the lesson you learned was pay attention to your balance sheet, pay attention to your expenses and, and things in that zip code, right? I'm yeah. sure there are a lot of things you, oh, yeah, you learned definitely. coming out of that. You know, there's, there's, and, and also there are probably, probably some things that, that really seared into your mind psychologically with regards to cash. And the, the pendulum can swing the other way too, right? So you can make ineffective use of cash because you're, holding on to it in a rainy mm -hmm. day fund or what have you. Yeah. So, so how do, how do you, um, how do you, how do you recommend, I mean, you can speak specifically with regards to how you manage bright or just the generality. How do you make sure that that pendulum stays centered? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. Um, you know, you, you don't want to, you don't want to impede the growth of an organization by not investing mm -hmm. back in the organization, right? So you need to, 
continuously invest back in the business. But I think you need to make sure that you're doing it very calculated with a lot of thought. You know, I, we, we've certainly gotten a lot more mature in terms of the way we budget, the way we budget for operating expense, the way we budget for capital. You know, I've learned a lot personally as a business owner, as a prof- you know, be, I, I've matured professionally as a business owner in that regard. You know, the way I budgeted back in 1999, 2000 is very different than it is today. Thank <laughs> goodness. You know, and I've right. got some great people that help me with that, which is fantastic. Again, surround yourself with great people, but you need to continue to invest back in the business. You can't just, you know, pull cash out of the business all the time. You can't just, you know, take it away and not do anything with it. I mean, you can, that's a decision you can make, right? But, you know, cash sitting in a bank today, anyway, certainly doesn't really do you any good. You don't make any money on it, right? You're making 0.01% interest, but maybe, maybe. uh, Before inflation. Yeah, before inflation in business accounts, you're you're not really making anything on it. So, you know, you want to figure out ways where you can get return on an investment. So you're either, you know, investing that, that cash, in some type of, you know, a, account that's, that's making money for the business and earning interest somewhere, or you can invest it back in people, process, and technology, right? And so that's certainly what we've done over the last eight or nine months. We've made sure that we've taken some of that capital and the strength of that balance sheet and invested back into the business so that we can have exponential growth of that capital after it's deployed, right? By more people, better people. You know, better processes. You and I were just talking about, you know, a very simple investment we made in a in a, a more robust phone system and a in a, commu- a unified collaboration platform. I mean, that's going to be a huge deal to us. We had one before; it was an excellent platform, but we made that investment five years ago. Technology's changed quite a bit in five years. It was time for us to make another investment to integrate that that unified collaboration system with all of these other mission critical business applications because that technology exists today. We can do that. We're going to get greater benefit out of it. So, you know, you, you definitely don't want to sit on that, but you want to have enough in the event that for some reason, you know, revenues start to tick down for one reason or another that you can, you know, weather the storm for at least a nine to 12 month period of time in my, I'm, I'm really conservative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like to make sure that I could weather a storm for nine or 12 months and feel good about it, you know, and not have to, you know, curl up in the fetal position on the couch at two or three o'clock in the morning anymore. Right. Be ready to go when the time is right. Be ready to go. So if you got any do-overs, you can't change what's done, but (laughs) if you got any do-overs, are there any that you'd like to share with us for the benefits of other folks who are in similar positions and earlier, earlier stages of growth or, or maybe not? Anything you you can share with us? Any words of wisdom? Yeah, you know, I what I can tell you is I don't have any regrets. You know, I've always given it 110%. I've done the best I possibly could do. Always, I've always tried to do the best I possibly could do at any, any one point in time. So I don't have any regrets. Um, you know, but you talk specifically about do-overs. Would, would I do things over? I, I probably would have, if I had to do it again, and, and I was still 28 years old, I would tell myself to make sure you surround yourself with like-minded people as quickly as possible. That um, if you identify anybody who you feel is not like-minded and could be, you know, who, who could inhibit the thing, impede the things that you want to do, make some changes quickly. Recognize that early on and, and act on that. If you feel that 
you know, your gut's telling you something, your gut's probably right, follow that. So n- number one would be to make sure you surround yourself with like-minded people very quickly. I, I, I probably would have made the transition into the, the data network security space sooner than we did. Um, even though Trevor joined us in 2003 and he kind of launched us into that, um, it, it really took probably five or six years for us to really, everybody in the business to get on board because we didn't have enough like-minded people, right? But I, I could have probably forced that a little bit more and, and thinking back should have gotten all, gone all in a little earlier. We're still, we were still on the early end of this. And I think, yeah. um, you know, we, we've, we've been blessed from that perspective, but I would have gone even faster, even quicker. And, you know, even as just a few months ago. Um, not a few months ago, but just even a few years ago, I would have gone even faster, even quicker. And we're we're moving at such a pace now. You know, we've really accelerated since working with with you, Kanai, and and Jay and Jet. We've we've really accelerated the pace at which we're moving. And you know, we're we're instead of you know moving at let's say a little bit more methodical pace, we're moving as fast as we can. And you know, we might make an error or two here, but we're fixing those along the way. And um, Again, learning from our mistakes. We're truly living that do not fear failure mantra, right? And going fast. So again, you know, just a few minor things, but probably move a little faster, surround myself with like-minded people and would have jumped into the security space a little quicker than we did, even though we were on the early end of it. Is there anything, as you think back about that time where you were just thinking about getting into networking and security, is there anything that would have pushed you over, pushed you over the, the, the hump so to speak, in the way that Trevor ultimately did when he joined the business? I think the difference between Trevor and I is that, um, you know, I had lived four years of the, the PC side of the world, you know, the, the white box building side of the world. And I was very passionate about that. I was very bought into it. I, we had had a lot of success, we'd, at least at the top line. We'd grown the business very successfully. Uh, we had a great client group of clients. And you know, still to this day, the, the many, many of the clients that we're performing security services work for or, or providing security tools to are the same clientele, you know, same relationships. Great. So, but I, I think that's the biggest difference. I, you know, I had been in the business for three or four years, working my tail off to grow it. We had done that. Trevor came in at a different point and, and um, you know, he didn't have all that, that history, that same level of history. And so he was ready to kind of... Um, make that same investment that I had made in, in the PC world into this you know, data network security world. So I think that's the difference. And had I not had that history I, and, and entered at the same time he would have, I probably would have you know, pushed even further than that or quicker than that. Excuse me. So does you that brought make, a certain Does that make of, sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I, I, and I think one of the underlying, one of the underlying points to this, and this has come up in other aspects of the conversation we've just had, is the level of enthusiasm and the level of energy you bring to uh, focusing on a given business agenda matters. Oh, yeah. It's not the only thing, but from a leadership standpoint, it's key. And Trevor brought that in a way that you, you were focused and enthusiastic about the PC business. Right. And I, and I think, you know, to you, to that point, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're both high energy, very enthusiastic, you know, people. Uh, I think that with both of us being high energy and enthusiastic on, on that 
data network security piece really helped us to accelerate that piece of the business faster, right? Once once yeah. we were both working on that versus just one of us working on it and one of us sort of working on it, it, it yeah. really changed the game for us, right? Yeah. That, that focus. People talk about focus all the time, right? I mean, focus, focus, focus. It's, it really is quite important. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to reconcile this in my mind with uh, a quote that's just memorable for me from a product design firm that I follow. And the quote goes something along the lines of, enthusiasm is not a substitute for factual information, for knowing, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, they're in the business of promoting people to measure twice, cut once, and, and sure. to build in that, in that way. Yeah. And so I'm trying to reconcile the combination of the two. Because they certainly both matter. If you lack enthusiasm, nothing's going to happen. But if you lack convincing information about this being the right path forward, it becomes more challenging to get your entire team to, to get behind you, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it gets to that concept of data-driven decision-making, right? And, and mm -hmm. having great data uh, helps you make better business decisions, right? And if if you're, it, it doesn't matter what you, if you're enthusiastic about a bad business decision, it's still a bad business decision, even though you're enthusiastic sure. about it. Right. And you're making that bad business decision. Why? Because uh, you don't have good data most of the time. Right. And so when you have good data and then you can be enthusiastic about that business decision that you're making, it's a calculated risk that you're taking. Right. That's that's certainly helpful. That's a powerful combination. Good, good data driven, uh, good data to make data driven business decisions. Coupled with uh, enthusiasm, it's important. You know, I get I, again. I give you a lot of credit for uh, helping us with that. We we've been able to take a, a longer, harder look at the data as it's presented to us, and and look at what that's telling us, and and how we can utilize that information to our advantage, right? And it, and it could go both ways. That data could be telling us, hey, you're not investing your time in the right spot. You should be investing your time over here. And uh, even though we might have thought for many years that we were investing our time in the right spot, the data is telling us we're not. And we should be investing in, in a different area. And so, you know, it's, it's not like it's something that we haven't known, but having somebody else tell you that is very powerful. Very powerful. And so I give mm -hmm. you a lot of credit for that. You know that. Thank you. Yeah. You were certainly doing wonderful on your own. Uh, <laughs> just. Just uh, leading up to that point, but I appreciate that. And I'm glad it was valuable. Justin, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot. And as always, I've enjoyed talking. Can I? It's always a pleasure. Nice to see you, actually, too. And even though we're doing a podcast, I, yeah. love, I love the fact that you use technology here so I can see your smiling face while we're talking here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Can I? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by AGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.agkcompany.com. That's A-G-K-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.